standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Those who are able, we can kneel for a word of prayer, or I'll kneel up here. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that is my prayer today as we come together to search and to study thy word, to seek instruction from thee. We pray, Father, that thou wilt lift our minds heavenward as we contemplate the things that thou hast written to us. Father, we ask and plead thy presence with us. May thy spirit work upon each and every one of our hearts and minds. I pray, Father, that all that is said and done today be to thy honor and glory. We want thy name to be hallowed, not only in word, but in thought and in heart. We want thy name to be hallowed in each of our hearts. And I pray, Father, that as we gather together, that that will bless us with thy presence. Please be with me, Father, as I lead out. I pray be with my lips. I pray that thou will touch them with a coal from off thine altar, that the things that I speak may uplift and exalt my Lord and Savior Jesus. And I pray that they may be in accordance with that which is truth. Father, all of this I ask in the blessed name of thy Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to share this morning on what I've entitled Character Building. How do we develop character? How is character developed? I want to look at that from both the Bible and the testimonies. See if we can get a better understanding of how it is that we develop character. We know that nothing we have here on earth we're going to take with us to heaven. None of our possessions, none of our loved ones. The only thing that we are guaranteed to take with us to heaven is our character. It's the only thing that will go with us, and it is the only thing that will determine where we go. And so character building is essential to salvation. And so I want us to understand what the Bible has to say in regard to character, how it's built, and how it's maintained. And in order to understand what character building is about, it helps us if we understand what character is. So I'm first going to approach it. We're going to take a look at what character is. We're going to look at the moral character because this is the most important part of character. Aside from just that of personality, we want to understand the moral character. And I want to start by defining our terms. When we talk about character, we're going to look at it from the biblical perspective. And the word character is defined and used in the Bible, and it's only used once in the Bible. It's used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And it's a verse in reference to Jesus. It says that God spoke at various times in diverse manners unto the prophet, or unto us through the prophets. This same God has spoken in the last days unto us by his Son. And we are told that he was made in the express image of God. That phrase express image is the word character. And it is defined thus by Freiburg's analytical lexicon. It tells us that It originally meant an engraver or an engraving tool. 
that which we make characters, that which characters were made in ancient times were through engraving tools. Moreover, it meant that which was an exact representation or a precise reproduction, that is, of an original. So when we're talking about a reproduction, it tells us that there was an original. So when we're talking about character, we're talking about a precise or a reproduction of something that went before. And so that's what we're looking at when we're talking about our character. Our character is to be a representation of one who is before, an antitype, as it were. We are to be types of that antitype. And here's a, a statement. This is taken from the Periodical Review and Herald, April 21st, 1885. Helps us understand what we're talking about. We're told there that the thoughts and feelings combined or together make up the moral character. So when we're looking at the moral character, what we're looking at is not so much the physical part of man, but the what? The mental, right? The thoughts and the feelings. Our thoughts and our feelings come from where? From the mind. We call it the brain. But the Bible calls it the mind. So what we're looking at is the mental part of man. The moral part of man, or the moral character, is determined by the mental part of man, the brain, the mind. And this is what we're going to look at. Now, when we're talking about the, the mental or uh, what we call the brain part of man, we have a terminology for that in science. It's called physiology. Physiology is actually the study or the science of the mind. That of its various phenomena or parts, the way it is expressed, its affections, and its powers. So when we're talking about physiology, we're talking about how the mind works. And how the mind works is what determines moral character, the thoughts and the feelings. So when we talk about physiology, we're real talking about the way the mind operates how it exerts influence, not only in our life, but in the lives of others. This we call physiology. And in scientific terms, they often talk about physiology or the way in which our different parts or members of our body interact with one another. But we're looking specifically at that member of man called the brain or the mind. So with that, we're going to look at the two parts, the two major parts of the mind. Here, inspiration tells us in second volume of the testimonies, page 363, this interesting statement. The author says, the animal part of our nature should never be left to govern the moral and intellectual. Now here she's talking about the mind. She's not talking about the actual physical body when she says the animal part of our nature. She's talking about the mind. So the mind has two parts, as it were. It's made up of two parts, primarily the animal part and the moral and intellectual part. And these are the two powers that form character within us. And we're going to take a look at that. The Bible actually separates these two parts of the mind using two very distinct words. In English in our King James Version and in many of the other modern translations, 
these two words are translated by one English word, usually mind. So when we read the word mind, we're often not aware that two words are used in the original to express this. One, clearly talking about the animal part of man, that which is common to all the other animals in this world, and that which is the moral and intellectual, that which separates man from the other animals, these two parts. And we're going to take a look at them briefly. Now, the first is the word noeo. That's the verb, and its noun form is next to it in parentheses. This word is used to express the moral and intellectual part of man. And I've given a few Bible examples of it here, how it's translated in the New Testament. Matthew 15, 17, it's translated to understand. In Mark 7, 18, to perceive. 2 Timothy 2, 7, to consider. And Ephesians 3, 20, to think. So this is where often that understanding or perceptive part of man is. We often associate it with the conscience, the moral intellect of man. This is where we understand things. When information comes in to the mind, it is filtered and understood through this part. And this uses this word to express it in the original language. And in Romans 12, verse 2, the noun form is used and is translated mind. You're going to see that both these words are translated mind. So when Paul talks about us not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, this is the part that he's talking about. The renewing of the intellectual, the moral part of man, the moral compass, as it were. The conscience must be renewed. The second part is the word phroneo, and this is actually comes from the same root from which we get our English word brain from, brain. And it relates to the animal part of the mind. Now, all what we call vertebrates in scientific term have this part of the brain. It's the central core of the brain. All animals have this part to them. And it's the animal part of us. In, in the Bible, it's translated in these number of ways. Colossians 3.2, it's called, the verb is translated to set the affection on something. Matthew 16.23, to savor. Now, these are Jesus' words to Lucifer. He says, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Romans 14.6, talking about regarding a day, regarding, for when we regard something. And in Philippians 4.10, to care. And in Philippians 2.5, the noun form is once again translated mind. We are told to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we see very clearly that all human beings have this part. It's where the affections lie, the feelings, the sentiments. The affections are the feelings that we place on something. Those are what we call affections. When you have affections for something, it's the feelings you have toward it. It's the regard you have for it. What we savor is that which we has our affection. It's where the interest, the desire. So this is the animal part of man. But notice that we are to let this mind, this part of our mind, be in us, which was also in Jesus. 
So we see very clearly that Jesus had this part of his brain, his mind, similar to us, the same as us. But Jesus' affections were very different than ours. And we are to have the same affections, the same mind, the same passions and sentiments that Jesus had. Not only the intellectual mind, but that animal part of our mind is also to be transformed. So we're looking at, at the two parts of, of the brain, the two parts of the mind. And I have them here mapped out in kind of a, a visual for you so you can see that man's mind is, the brain is unique among the other animals in the world. As we have a part that's called the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobe. And that is where the moral intellect resides in man. And you can see it here. It's termed the higher mind, the moral power. It's where the reasoning and understanding reside in man. Now, the other animals do not have this capacity or functioning in their brain. Only we do. The second part, that part which essentially encompasses the inner core of the brain, as well as including the inner core of the brain, is represented by the word for neo, as I mentioned. It's the animal part of the brain. It's what we is termed the lower mind, the animal power, and it's where the thoughts, the feelings, the sentiments, and sometimes the imagination reside. And I'm going to kind of share a couple thoughts here. Now, there is a third part to man, which is an exception from all the other creatures, together with the frontal lobe. And this is the key part to what makes up man's moral character or what helps form the moral character. And it's called the will. And I'm going to share a statement here from the book Steps to Christ. It's page 47, the first paragraph. It's in the, parag uh, in the section, I believe, on consecration. There the author says, What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. So a couple things I want us to note is that this will is a force. It's a power that God has given to man. It's not something that resides naturally in man. It's a gift from God. And it's a power of choice. It's where we make decision, where we make our choices. Information may come into the brain. We may perceive and understand it by our frontal lobe. We may have feelings about it in our animal part of our nature. But the choice, the action we take upon those thoughts is determined by the will. And that's why it's the governing power in man. We can have all kinds of thoughts, but it's the will that determines what thought we act out, what thought we speak. That is determined by the will. And this is why it is imperative that we understand because everything depends upon the right action of the will, right decisions, right choices. It's something God has given to us to exercise. And this is the key factor in the formation of character, as we will see momentarily. The second is taken from Christ's object lessons together with this. There the author, speaking about the will, she says, as the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at his, that is God's command, may be accomplished in his strength. 
all His biddings are enablings. So the will, if surrendered and united to God's will, becomes omnipotent, that is, all-powerful. Our will must be united to God's will to accomplish His will. And that's what the author meant by cooperation. As our will, as our choices are in cooperation with God through His Spirit, our will becomes omnipotent. The will of God is actually wrought out through us. That is, our will is made omnipotent by God in His strength, we are told. And this is how all God's enable or biddings, all that which He calls us and asks us to do, are enablings. God has empowered us to do it through the power of the will, the force of the will. And this brings me to this second part, in the formation of character, in the building of character, we must necessarily understand probation. Because probation is the ground, the proving ground, where character is made. It's the opportunity, the time and opportunity God has given to us to form that character. And once again, I want to define the term when we talk about probation so that we understand what we're talking about. Probation, according to Noah Webster, is defined as the act of proving. And it relates specifically in the scriptural sense to a moral trial, that which tries or proves something's morality or moral character. Probation is that which God has given us, the moral trial, as it were. He goes on to define it as the state of man in the present life in which he has the opportunity of proving his character and being qualified for a happier state. So this is the proving ground upon which man is to prepare and create a moral character in the likeness to God. And God has given the powers and capabilities for man to accomplish this. Second here is a statement. This is taken from the Review and Herald, February 24th, 1874. Now, this is talking about probation in regard to man. There the statement is made. It says, God, in counsel with his son, formed the plan of creating man in their own image. He was placed upon probation. Man was to be tested and proved. And if he should bear the test of God and remain loyal and true after the first trial, he was not to be beset with continual temptations but was to be exalted equal with the angels and henceforth immortal. So we see that in man's creation, man was created on probation. He was given all that which was necessary to perfect a righteous character, a perfect character in the likeness with God's. Now, man at that time did not have a character. He was to develop a character. And it would be on this probationary time that that would take place. He was given a test, and we'll notice from Scripture what that test was. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 tell us the test that God gave to man to prove his character. It's, it reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Here was the test. 
God created everything that was good for man. Everything that was beautiful to the sight, beautiful and wonderful to the taste. Everything that was to delight man in his senses and in his intellectual part was given to man by God. And God put one thing in that garden, and he's made it off limits to man. He said, this tree does not belong to you. I have not given it to you. It is mine. Don't eat of it, or you will die. This was the test to prove whether man would remain loyal to God, whether his choices would result in a righteous character, or whether he would disobey and form an unrighteous character. And James, in the New Testament, comments upon this as well. It's in chapter 1, verse 12. Notice the language very carefully. James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, one that passes through it. For notice what he says. For when he is tried, and that word is in the past tense, it's actually the Greek word for proven. When he has been proven, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Man was placed on trial. And God said, Blessed is the man that endureth that trial. And we all know what was the result of Adam's trial. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here in the state that we are, right? Adam failed that trial. He failed to create or form, build, a righteous character. He had everything necessary to do it. God had given it to him. But he failed. But we're going to see that God did not leave man in that state. Here's a statement taken from patriarchs and prophets. So notice, probation was not exclusive to man. In this statement, now this is in, uh, I believe, the second or third chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets, the author makes this statement. She says, Like the angels, the dwellers in Eden, speaking of Adam and Eve, had been placed upon probation. Their happy estate could be retained only on condition of fidelity to the Creator's law. They could obey and live or disobey and perish. So it's clearly it was a matter of choice. And the choices that they made would determine their destiny, whether they would be saved or whether they would be lost, whether they would be exalted to the position of the angels and made immortal, or whether they would perish. Now notice, she begins by saying, like the angels. And this is something that is very important for us to understand in regard to probation, that all of God's creation, all of those intelligences, the angels, those of the unfallen worlds were created on probation. Even the angels. Lucifer failed. A third of the angels failed to form righteous characters. They did not believe God. They did not obey God. They chose rather to believe the devil and to obey him. And so they fell. So angels too, with man, were put on probation. There are angels that passed. Angels that have been exalted and given immortality. They still serve God to this day. But some fell, like man. So we see the importance of probation. It's the proving ground. And God has given every one of us a proving ground. Even in our day, in a sin, sinful world, God has given us a proving ground. 
And so that brings in the element of temptation. Probation would be nothing if it weren't for temptation. God suffered man to be tempted. He placed the tree in the garden. It was there. He allowed the devil access to that tree to tempt man. Should man come to that tree, he would be permitted to be tempted. Now, a temptation, according to Webster, and this is the language that we're using, a temptation is a solicitation of the passions. It's an enticement to evil, a lure, as you were, when you're leading somebody on into something. That's a temptation. And it's also that which is presented to the mind as an inducement to evil. So when we think of temptation, it's nearly always in the context of evil. Now, there are temptations to good as well, but the primary use of the term is that which regards sin or evil. When we are an inducement or an enticement is placed before us to do something which is not in accord with God's law, which is wrong. That is called a temptation. Now, I want us to read some statements, some statements in regard to temptation. The first is found in James chapter 1 again, verses 13 through 15. The verses that immediately followed that which James said regarding he that endureth temptation. He begins to speak about temptation. Let's read it. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So here the Apostle James lays out very clearly how it works, what temptation is. Notice that he tells us very plainly that God cannot be tempted and that God does not tempt man. God puts no solicitation of evil before man. God did not solicit. God provided everything that was for man's good. He induced him and enticed him to good. He encouraged him to do that which was right. But he permitted the devil to tempt man. Should man approach the devil and trod on his ground, that is the devil's ground, he was to be permitted to be tempted of the devil. But God does not tempt. God did not put that inducement before man. Man must choose to go on the devil's ground to be tempted, you see. So James says God does not tempt man. And notice, regarding temptation, he tells us that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Now this language is talking about a response. When an inducement is put before you, what draws you to it? Your own lust. It's a response. James is talking about a response that man has. Now, if there is no evil or sin in the heart, there's no response. That sin, that thought, has to be planted there in order for there to be a response to that enticement, a response to that temptation. And you will see this very clearly in another verse. Romans 7 one of the famous verses of the Apostle Paul in reference to, Oh, wretched man that I am. It's that chapter. Just before saying this, verses 21 to 23, Paul is recorded in these words. Notice the language very carefully. 
He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. There is something in him. Notice, he says, For I delight in, in the law of God after the inward man, the mind. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So there was something that was in him that responded. Something in him that was drawing him. It's sin in our members, sin in our mind, sin in our heart that responds to the enticement and leads us into sin. And when that lust conceives with the action, it produces sin. And sin, when it is finished, produces death, according to James. And this is the logical course that sin takes. It's the way in which character is developed, evil character or righteous character. I want you to note, this is taken from a letter written 1894. It's manuscript number 70. And there in the fourth paragraph of this letter, notice the statement made here. We're going to, I'm going to highlight the last sentence, but we'll read the whole paragraph or a good portion of it. The author says, Remember that however trying the circumstances in which a man may be placed, like the Garden of Eden, nothing can really weaken his soul so long as he does not yield to temptation, but maintains his own integrity. The interests most vital to you individually are in your own keeping. No one can damage them without your consent. All the satanic legions cannot injure you unless you open your soul to the arrows of Satan. As long as you are firm to do right, your ruin can never take place. Now notice what she says in this last statement. And this is in connection with what we read in James and in Romans. The author says, If there is not pollution of mind in yourself, all the surrounding pollution cannot taint and defile you. You see, the taint and defilement is determined by what is in the mind or heart. If there's sin in the heart, there will be a response to that enticement. The, it will, and the response will be a conception with lust, which will result in sin. So if there's no pollution of mind, then all the surrounding pollution cannot taint or defile us. It doesn't matter what circumstances we're in, what trials or temptations we may face. As long as there's no pollution in mind, in the mind or heart, that sin on the outward, all the pressure that can be brought to bear cannot taint us. Satan cannot force us into sin. We must consent to it. We must choose to do it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Speaking in regarding our Lord and Savior Jesus, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And how was this? Because Satan had nothing in him. Nothing that Satan tried to plant in the mind of Jesus was left. No thought of rebellion, no thought of sin, no temptation that was put to Jesus was consented to. 
And so Satan had nothing in him. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was without sin because there was no defilement or pollution of his mind. His mind remained pure. Even though he had a human mind just like we, he kept it pure. And so all the defilement of this world could not taint him. Not even the temptations of Lucifer himself, the devil himself, could not taint Jesus. He was without sin. And in signs of the times, an important aspect in regard to temptation that much of the world fails to understand is that temptation is not sin. Just because you're enticed does not mean you've sinned. Just because a thought is put into your mind does not make you a sinner. What makes you a sinner is when you yield to that thought, when you consent to that thought. When you cherish that thought, it becomes sin. It defiles you. Just having that thought does not defile you because you can put it away. You know, there's an old Satan, an old saying, I should say, an old saying that Martin Luther used to give. He'd say, you know, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. You see, you can't keep thoughts from coming into your mind but you can keep them from building a nest there. You can keep from thinking upon them. You can reject them. You can put them out of your mind. You cannot give your consent or yield to those thoughts. And in so doing, we remain pure. We remain undefiled. You see, sin lies in the yielding, in opening the mind to that thought, consenting it, bringing it in to the inner sanctuary as it were. Notice this statement from the View and Herald, April 21st, 1885. It says, Man has been placed in a world of sorrow. Speaking of our present fallen world. Man has been placed in a world of sorrow, care, and perplexity. He is placed here to be tested and proved, as were Adam and Eve, that he may develop a right character and bring harmony out of discord and confusion. You know, there's a statement in the Old Testament that says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? The answer, no man, right? But God can. See, God can do that. Nothing is impossible with God. We may live in a sin-infested world, if a world filled with confusion and discord and disharmony. But God can bring perfection out of that. God can make every one of us a citadel, of righteousness and purity, that which will be to his honor and glory. We are to bring harmony out of the discord in this world. We are to be the light of this world, Jesus said. And we do that by the formation of our character, by being in this testing ground, as it were, in this world. The Lord wants us to prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. That's why he's placed us here. Not that we should be conformed to this world, but that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that leads me to the last section here. I want to bring all this together and look at what the Bible says in regard to the plan that God laid for character formation back in the garden and in our present time. In the garden, we are told in Genesis 2, verse 8 and verse 15, that 
The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. The beauty of the world was not sufficient. God gave man his own beautiful palace. It was called the Garden of Eden. In the Greek, it's the word paradise. God gave man paradise, and he put them in paradise. That was his personal home. The rest of the world was his home, yes. But paradise, Eden, was to be his home in particular. And he made it exceptionally beautiful. Everything was there for the delight of man. And then it says, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God gave man useful occupation. Why? Why did God man give work to do? If man was already perfect, certainly he would not have needed a work. But God gave him a work to do to help bring about that perfection. He gave him every opportunity. He gave him every power and afforded him everything he needed to perfect that righteous character. And he gave him the work to do it. To dress and to keep the garden was to be his labor that would help form a righteous character. Notice what the book Education says in regard to this. Page 21, paragraph 2. The author says, Useful occupation was appointed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, as a blessing to strengthen the body, to expand the mind, and to develop the character. To do what? To strengthen the physical body, because the body and mind are connected. The brain and the body are connected. If the body suffers, the brain suffers. And if the brain suffers, the body suffers. So physical labor helps to strengthen both body and mind, you see. It expands the mind as well as strengthens the body. But it does something else, doesn't it? It develops what? Character. Physical labor develops character? Yes. Because everything we do is a choice. And we'll see that. Every choice we make is either building a good character or a bad one. Notice, this is taken from letter 22, 1890. Here we are told that no single action makes a man's character. So not one single choice that made him what he is or what she is. No single action makes, makes a man's character. It is through the re repetition of actions that the character is formed. And she gives an example. For repeated actions form habits. And habits become what? Character. So you see how character is developed? As we continue in something, we are repeating actions. Those repeated actions become habits, something we do naturally, out of nature. Habits is what we commonly call, oh yeah, he's a natural. Not really. He's just developed habits, or she's developed habits. And if those habits are continued in, they will become character, that which we take to heaven, or that which will seal our destruction. Christ's object lessons tells us something about the character. It says, and by the character, our destiny for time, the present, and for eternity is decided. So it's the character that decides whether we have a part in God's kingdom or a part in the lake of fire. It's the character. And the character is that which we develop through those repeated actions which form habits and the continuance in those habits that form character, whether they be good habits or bad habits. It will determine what character we have. 
And again, the youth instructor, December 15, 1886, paragraph 4 says, A strong, well-balanced character is made by a faithful performance of individual acts of duty in little things. So it's not just the big things that develop character in life. It's the little things we do every day, from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep at night. We are developing character. And faithfulness in the little duties every day is either building a good character, a well-rounded righteous character, or an unrighteous character. Notice, we're going to tie in the brain to this. I gave you some examples earlier about the animal part of man. I quote that whole verse there. It's Colossians 3.2. Now, this is the word phroneo, which is talking about the animal part of the mind. Here the apostle admonishes the Colossians to set your affection where? On things above, not on things on the earth. So in order to perfect a righteous animal part of our mind to where our feelings, our sentiments, our passions are good, we must set them by our will. We must choose to set our affections, to set our desires on good things, on the things of heaven. We are to learn to delight in the things of God, those things which are holy and pure and true and righteous and honest and noble and virtuous. We are to set our mind, our affections on these things, not on the things of the world. Because if we set our, things on, our affections on the things of the world, we become like the world. But if we set our affections on the things from above, we become like those that are from above, like Jesus. And again, Philippians 3.19, Paul talking about a specific class, he says, For many walk, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, who mind what? Earthly things. And this is a verb here, not a noun. They mind them. Just as we mind our parents, that is, obey them, do what we're told, says these mind earthly things. They submit, they yield to the ways of the world. And in so doing, they become the enemies of the cross of Christ. So they've formed bad habits by setting their affections on things on the earth. This is what develops the carnal mind. You'll see here Romans 8, verses 5 through 6. Notice, now these are verbs here, not nouns. For they that are after the flesh do mind, again the same verb, for now, do mind the things of the flesh. If we are carnal or fleshly, it's because we mind the things of our flesh. He continues, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. And I put the word mind there in brackets because it's implied. The same verb is implied. Just as the carnally minded mind the things of their flesh or the things of the earth, the spiritually minded mind the things of the Spirit of God. They're obedient. Thus, to be carnally minded is death. Those that form that character will die. But those that are spiritually minded, that mind the things of the Spirit, those that are led of the Spirit of God, the sons of God, these, life and peace. So all, Paul is here talking about character and how character is developed by the mind. By setting our affections on certain things, we develop character, either for heaven or for destruction. And here's a statement 
The last here is Acts of the Apostles, page 482. Here we read that man is to make earnest efforts to overcome that which hinders him from attaining to perfection. But he is wholly dependent upon God for success. We are to make the choices. Yes, earnest efforts are to be made by us, but we of ourselves are incapable. We are told that we are utterly dependent upon God for success in this endeavor. Without God, we cannot form a righteous character. We must depend wholly upon God for that. Without the aid, she continues, without the aid of divine power, it avails nothing. God works and man works. So it's a cooperative work. Resistance of temptation must come from man. This is our part. Who must draw his power from God. So we are simply to resist. As James says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. That's right. That is our work. We are to resist temptation. And we are to draw on God for the power to do it. She continues. On the one side, there is infinite wisdom, compassion, and power. Speaking of God. On the other, weakness, sinfulness, absolute helplessness. Speaking of us. And that's why Paul could write, you know, I will therefore glory in my weakness, right? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. For his strength is made perfect in my weakness. His wisdom is made perfect in my foolishness. You see, all of our weakness, all of our failings can be made perfect in Christ. If we will draw strength from him in our struggles and conflicts every day, we will gain victory. We will be conquerors in this life. But we must remember that we are absolutely helpless in this. We have no power to resist in ourselves. So when temptation comes, where must it find us? Relying wholly upon God. Trusting in Him, looking to Him. If we take our eyes off of Him, we, like Peter, will begin to sink in the water. And the last statement here, this is taken from Mount of Blessing, or Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, is full title. Page 83. It says, Those who have sought for the development and perfection of Christian character by exercising their faculties and good works will, in the world to come, reap that which they have sown. The work begun upon earth will reach its consummation in that higher and holier life to endure throughout eternity. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Those who have sought for that development of perfect, perfect Christian character, and I believe that's something that every one of us have sought for in this life, if we will exercise our faculties, our mental and our physical faculties, in this work, we are ensured victory. If we will look to Christ, if we will look to God and draw strength from Him, we are assured victory that we have the promise of that higher and holier life, the promise of life everlasting and peace in the kingdom to come and even now. God wants us to have that. And I want to leave us with that thought. And I want to invite those who are able, let's close with a word of prayer.
Our Father, which art in heaven, Father, I thank thee for the love that thou hast bestowed upon us, for the opportunities that thou hast provided for us each and every day, victories over self, victories over sin and temptation. Father, we are but weak and erring men, men of like passions, those who are sinful, weak, erring. And Father, we stand in need, in need of a Savior. We stand in need of heavenly aid for the battles that are before us today and every day. Father, I pray that Thou will grant to us strength from heaven, power from on high, that our wills might be united to Thy will, that our wills might become omnipotent, that the biddings that Thou hast given to us may be our enablings, enabling us to be as Thou art, that we may represent Thee in thought, in body, and in action, in word and in deed. Father, I thank Thee for the love that Thou hast bestowed upon us. And I am thankful, Father, for the words of encouragement, the words of hope and strength that Thou hast given to us to gird us up, as it were, in this world below, that we might be strengthened, that we might be confident, as the Apostle Paul wrote, of him who hath begun that good work in us, knowing that thou wilt perfect that work even unto the day of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Father, it is in that confidence that we come before thee, trusting that the work that thou hast begun in us, that thou wilt perfect that work by thy grace. Only help us, Father, to unite our minds and our will to thine for the perfecting and completion of that work. For this we ask in the precious name of thy Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer Health and Missions